You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, we're turning tonight to the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, and you'll find the passage on page 1085 of the Church Bible. If you're using the Church Bible, John chapter 17, I think we'll read the first five verses and uh, we'll see how we're doing during the course of the evening. Just a word of reminder about the the beauty of John's gospel. Um, We're coming up to the time of year when we often read the first uh, 18 verses of John's gospel that often described as the prologue to the gospel, and they set before us the themes that John will work out about Jesus in the course of the gospel. And then, of course, uh, often after Easter, we read John chapter 22, the story of the restoration of Simon Peter, and in many ways, that's uh, the postlude to the gospel. So, there's a prologue, and there's uh, an afterward, a postlude. And then in between those two sections, the gospel divides into two sections. The first 12 chapters, by and large, are about Jesus' public ministry. And uh, that section of the gospel is often called the book of the signs, because during those 12 chapters, from chapter 2 onwards, when Jesus turns the water into wine at Cana, in Galilee, and for the first time, John tells us in John 2.11, the disciples saw his glory, and he shows signs. He identifies himself. These signs God does through him confirm that he is God's Son, and often those signs are accompanied with sermons and uh, There will be the sign of giving light to a blind man and a sermon on Jesus being the light of the world, and so on. And all during this time, Jesus is being watched by the religious leaders. He is on trial. They're looking for him to make a slip. And then towards the end of John chapter 12, Jesus understands a particular event in his life as being a sign that the time has come for his crucifixion. seems a very odd sign in John chapter 12 uh, because some Greeks come to one of the apostles and they, they want to see Jesus. And as soon as Jesus hears that Gentiles are coming, He says to the disciples, the time has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And by glorified in John's gospel, Jesus means his death and his resurrection. John thinks about the crucifixion of Jesus as his exaltation. Jesus says, for example, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And here there is this little breakthrough in Jesus' life and ministry when suddenly, 
out of the blue, as it were, Gentiles start coming to Jesus. And it's the sign to him that the time has come for God's promises to be fulfilled, that through him the nations would be brought to salvation. And more or less from that point onwards, beginning of chapter 13, opens up what we sometimes call the book of glory. Jesus now withdraws from the disciples who have left him or become cold to him. He withdraws from the world that has been hostile to him, and he begins to disclose himself in new ways, profound ways, as we've seen to this little group of 12, who very soon in chapter 13 become a group of 11, because there is another prophecy to be fulfilled, and that is that one of Jesus' own apostles is going to betray him. And we've been studying for a number of weeks now in chapters 13 through 17, and they're like a miniature gospel of John. They also have a prologue and an epilogue. They have a prelude and a postlude. The epilogue begins with Jesus taking off his outer garment and kneeling down and washing the feet of his apostles. Uh, important thing, I think, to notice is that he does it to all twelve. He washes the feet of Judas Iscariot. And then he begins to explain what he has done. And then at the end that we've now come to in chapter 17, Jesus gives us the postlude to this perhaps three-hour event, four-hour event, when he said, supper with his disciples, washed their feet, and given them teaching. And he's now turning to his heavenly Father to pray for them. And it's very interesting what he does. Um, most of us, unless we're asked to come up and pray or are praying in prayer meetings, feel very reluctant to listen to people hear our most intimate and private prayers. Uh, most of us are sufficiently self-conscious not to want people to come in and stand around when we're on our knees, perhaps at our bedside, praying. But interestingly, this is one prayer where Jesus Himself quite deliberately prays so that His disciples will hear Him pray. There is actually no other prayer like this in the whole of the Bible where someone prays deliberately wanting others to listen to their prayer. And fascinatingly, in the course of this prayer, Jesus says to His Father, Father, I'm saying these things in their presence so that they may know what it is I'm praying about and that they may have joy. It's a very amazing statement to make, that by listening to Jesus pray, the disciples can be filled with joy. So, here are the first verses of that prayer. After Jesus had said this, He looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. 
For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This prayer in John 17 from about the 5th century has been known as the priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. And in more recent centuries, particularly as the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. And it's a very apt description of the prayer for this reason, that the great work of the high priest every year in Israel was to go into the holiest place of all. He was the only person allowed to go in there. And when he did, he had to bring sacrificial blood of an animal that had been sacrificed for the sins of the people. It was the most sacred moment in the Jewish calendar. And it was a moment of intense drama. The high priest wore special robes, and on the hems of those robes were little bells. And they were not simply aesthetic or musical. They were functional. They were there to reassure the people that when this one man once a year went into the holiest place of all from which all Israelites except him were excluded, those bells were there to reassure the people that he had not been struck down by God and that his sacrifice had been rejected. And so it must have been a moment of extraordinary emotion in the temple that apparently on the Day of Atonement could be packed with thousands and thousands of anxious Israelites. When the movement of those bells was heard and the high priest would emerge from the holiest place of all, and he would do what high priests since the days of Aaron had been doing. He would raise his hands in a very distinctive way, and he would pronounce what we now nowadays know as the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And then the magical words, and give you peace. And I'm pretty sure if you had been there, you would have you would have felt as though you were at some great spectacle, some great drama where a wave of relieved emotion filled the company because you knew that the sacrifice had been accepted. Of course, if you were a believing Israelite, you knew that this was not the 
real sacrifice that would take away your sins. Otherwise, the high priest wouldn't need to do it next year, and the other priests wouldn't need to make their sacrifices year after year. But it was the greatest moment before the coming of the Lord Jesus by which the people knew that God was prepared to forgive their sins through a sacrifice made by a high priest. And it was such a monumental occasion that there were the strictest regulations for how the high priest would prepare for that solemn duty of bringing the sacrifice in and praying to Jehovah that God would once again pardon the sins of the people. The big thing the high priest did was to go through a series of washings, ritual washings or ablutions by which he would sanctify himself for the service of sacrificing for the people. And it's very significant that here, later on in this passage, the Lord Jesus says, you'll notice it in verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself. And then the other thing that the high priest would do uh, as he was separated off from all the other people was that he would give himself to intercession, to prayer. And the interesting thing about these prayers that he was expected to make was that they, they took place in concentric circles. First of all, he would come to God and pray about himself. And then he would come to God for his connections, for those who were intimately connected to him, and he would make particular intercession for his family. And then when he had finished his intercessions for himself and his intercessions for those who were nearest and dearest to him, he would then make intercession for all of the people of God, for all of the congregation of Israel. And what I think makes the description, Jesus' high priestly prayer, so particularly appropriate is that this is exactly what Jesus does here. He says in prayer to his Father, for their sakes I have sanctified myself. And then in this context, you'll notice that his prayer moves in three concentric circles. It begins in verses 1 through 5 with prayer for himself in his relationship to his Father and to the ministry the Father has given him. And then in verse 6 through to verse 19, it extends to the ones we might call his family, his intimate brothers, this little family that has gone everywhere with him for the past three years and accompanied him, and as he says elsewhere, have been with him all the way through the period of his trials and testings. And then when he has prayed for them, you'll notice he then moves on in verse 20 through verse 26 and extends that prayer wonderfully 
Perhaps this actually is the most thrilling part of the prayer for 21st century Christians, because now he prays for all in the future who will come to faith through the testimony of these 11 apostles. If you could short-circuit what Jesus is praying, you could say he's now going on to pray for everyone who will come to faith in him through the testimony of these 11 men that's enshrined in these 27 little books at the right-hand side of what we call the Bible. Or to put it very simply, if you're a Christian, Jesus this night was praying for you. So, this is a marvelous prayer. It is a beautifully intimate prayer. It's the only place in all the Bible where any individual addresses God with the words, Holy Father. And you sense here, if you, if you have some grasp of what's happening here, you, you sense here that you want to say, Lord, thank you that when you prayed like this, you allowed your disciples to overhear you. Thank you that when you prayed like this, you, you let your Father know that you were letting them know by this prayer that you wanted them in the midst of all the struggles they were going to go through. They wanted them to have joy because they knew that Jesus had prayed for them. Those are two things I suspect that we Christians don't often relate to one another. Uh, we find our joy in terms of the teaching of Scripture in many different ways. But here is the, here is the ultimate heart of joy in the midst of trials and difficulties and struggles and sorrows, to know He has prayed for me. You know what it's like when uh, someone says to you, I've been praying for you. It's kind, it's kind of overwhelming, isn't it? It's one thing for someone to say when you pour out your soul to them, I'll pray for you. But those of us who have said that know how often we may have failed. But for someone to be able to say, I have prayed for you. Like Simon Peter. This was the night that Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Satan has demanded to have all of you, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you are converted, when you're restored, I want you to strengthen the brothers. And you can't help thinking that after that moment when Peter looked across the courtyard and saw the eyes of Jesus and realized Jesus had actually heard him with blasphemy say, I have no idea who Jesus of Nazareth is. I am not one of his supporters. But when he went out into the night in Jerusalem and must have wept his soul out in the darkness of Jerusalem, 
What must have held him up was the echo of these words. But Peter, I have prayed for you. So this is a wonderful prayer. But tonight we're just going to look at uh, how it begins. Because here Jesus, the high priest, about to enter into that dark room between heaven and earth as he's lifted up on Calvary, and darkness covers the face of the earth, is coming to God and he's, he's opening his, his deepest desires to his Father first for himself. Now, what does Jesus most want for himself? The answer is written on the face of the text, isn't it? Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. And again in verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Actually, what he's asking for is the very thing that he'd illustrated to the apostles at the beginning of this evening, when he'd laid aside his outer garments and put the slave's towel round his waist and got a basin of water and kneeled down before them and washed away the dirt from their feet as a symbol of the way in which Although, as John says, he had been in all eternity, for all eternity, face to face with his heavenly Father, he was now coming down and he was washing the dirty feet of these often foolish disciples as a, as a dramatic picture of what he was about to do for them by dying on the cross. And then when he had finished washing their feet. John tells us he put on his clothes again, and he went back to the seat of honor at this Passover meal they were sharing. It was a glorious picture. If only they had eyes to see, but alas, at the time they didn't. It was a glorious picture of how he'd come from glory into the muck and mire of our lives and he was going to return to glory. He was going to sit again at the place of honor at the right hand of his Father. And now he's coming to his Father, having in symbolic form taught his apostles the heart of his ministry. He's coming to his Father and saying, Father, as I'm just about to descend into the darkness underneath the filth of the sludge of human sin, as I'm about to go to that moment when I'll cry out with a sense of God-forsakenness, Oh, Father, I long to be back home with you. Some of us, by nature, suffer from homesickness. Some of, the, some of the most surprising people suffer from homesickness. Not able to breathe your native air. I can't imagine what it's like for our, 
American friends here to be living so far away from all the delights of the United States of America, living in a country where you have to explain how you think to people, why you talk funny to people. You've got to shout down the telephone at people who are shouting down the telephone to you because they, they can't understand. There's a, kind of, there's a kind of strain in living in another country. Any of you who have done it, even if you've just done it for a few weeks, some of you have gone away in short-term missions with terrific ideas of, of how God will use you, and the first few days you have just been devastated by how you feel you don't really belong in this society. But we rarely think that that's how it must have been for the Lord Jesus. There was nobody who understood him. There was nobody who sensed what he, as it were, had laid aside in order to come among them. There was no one who had any real sense, although three of these disciples just for a moment had a glimpse of it on the mountain of transfiguration. There was none of them who had seen him in his glory. It had been veiled. It had been hidden. And so, for 33 years, he had by and large been treated by people who had no idea who he really was, treated as a kind of non-person, brought up in this poor home and treated as a kind of non-person. And here is his natural desire. It's the natural desire of a, of a child for his father. Father, I want to be with you again in my unveiled glory. He's not asking for a prize, you understand. You're not asking for promotion or a salary increase. He's just asking to be back where he really belongs to be home. And so he prays to his father, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. That's the striking thing, isn't it? He's saying, I want to, I want to go all the way through this and then to be exalted and unveiled at your right hand in, in all my magnificent glory as your son, as the one who, as a son, makes people think of the Father. I want you to glorify me in order that I may glorify you. He's speaking, of course, about about the great plan that the, the two of them, if we can speak this way, the two of them had had together with the Holy Spirit to begin to restore a lost world and wounded sinners and to bring to life those who were spiritually dead. His whole purpose in coming into this world 
was so that through finishing the work his father gave him to do, he would at the end of time be able to bring a multitude that nobody could possibly number back to his father and say, Father, here they are. I've done everything that was needed to bring these lost sinners to heaven's glory. And so you see, there's a kind of, there's a kind of interchange between his glory and his father's glory. It's almost like saying, I'm not, I'm not wanting this for myself, but I know it's only if I'm exalted to your right hand and you send the Holy Spirit. Remember how he had said, I'll go to the Father and I ask him to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will come down on the day of Pentecost and thousands and then tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands and then millions and then millions and millions of people will be brought to faith in me. And at the end, just as we have planned, as you glorify me in this way, glory will be brought to you. And these myriads of myriads will sing your praises throughout all eternity. And that's why I'm praying, Father, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you because you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Just as we close this evening, I want you to focus on that little expression that he would give eternal life to all those you have given him. Because one of the most interesting things that happens as you read down through this passage, as I hope you'll do during the course of the week, is you'll notice that expression appears again and again, again and again. Those you have given me. Those you have given me. Those you have given me. It's actually the most frequent way in John chapter 17 that Jesus describes you and me. He's doing all this for those his Father has given him. wonder if you keep anything that somebody important to you gave to you. Might be if you're younger, something your grandmother or great-grandmother gave to you. Might be something somebody in your family who has now died gave to you. Might be the first thing somebody you fell in love with gave to you. And it's so extraordinarily precious. And what makes it precious is not usually how valuable it is in itself. What makes it precious to you is the love you have for the person who gave it to you and the expression of their love for you in whatever it was they gave. 
and as Jesus prays for Himself to be glorified, and then for the apostles to be helped, and then for us to be brought to see Him in His glory throughout this passage. The way, and, and you understand His heart must have, been, must have been bursting with emotion. You know how on special occasions you want to have just the right words to describe things. And here as he comes to his father and as he prays about himself and about the salvation that his disciples will know, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ you have sent. He's saying, Father, the way I like to think about them, put your own name in there. Father, the way I like to think about John, the way I like to think about Peter, the way I like to think about that difficult disciple Thomas is you gave them to me, and I love them because you gave them to me, and because you gave them to me, I am going to bring them all the way home to glory. So now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. You know what the most amazing thing about Christ's glory is? That he doesn't want to have that glory without having you. He doesn't believe he will have completed the work his Father gave him to do unless he has you as one of his children. Or if I can put it this way, what is glory for him is blessing for you. I think perhaps that's one of the things those who aren't Christians can never understand. The characteristic feature of the non-Christian is that glory for God and blessing for him or her are two complete opposites. You can have the one or you can have the other, but you certainly would never have both. And what Jesus understands is that the only way to blessing in our lives is if he has glory. And the assurance for us as he prays for himself, his apostles, and for us is that if he has glory in our lives, then we will certainly have blessing. The older I get, the more I go back to the first question and answer of the Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, and to enjoy Him forever. These two things belong together, God's glory and your enjoyment, and that's what He's praying for. That's why He loves you so much, because you are somebody if you're a Christian even if you feel you're nobody, as we all often do, you are somebody 
that the Heavenly Father said to his son, my son, she's yours now. My son, he's yours now. Our church, my son, they're yours now. That's where his glory and our joy always meet. Our Heavenly Father, as we think of these dear people that our brother seeks to minister to, in answer to Jesus' prayer, that you would bring all those for whom he prayed, all those whom you gave to him, into your final glory. We thank you that the prayer of our Lord Jesus for his glory is one and the same as the prayer of the Lord Jesus for our blessing and salvation. And we pray as we go through these coming days that it may be embedded in our thinking and in our feeling. I am someone for whom the Lord Jesus gave his precious lifeblood. I am someone whom my heavenly Father gave to his Son in order that he might have glory. We rejoice, our Father, in these riches that we scarcely begin to live in. And we pray that you will bathe us more and more in a sense of our privileges in order that more and more we may delight to be your children. So richly bless us, we pray, and teach us that we are yours. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.